People can be dismissed at this time. Go to the back and learn on their level. We're grateful for the evens teaching them the basis there. Well, the rest of you turn to Mark chapter 7, if you would. Mark chapter 7 is where our text is this morning. If you are visiting with us today, we're so grateful to have you. You're our honored guest, and we're just glad you made some time to be with us this morning. Mark chapter 7. There are three kinds of people in every church. There are believers, there are unbelievers, and there are make-believers. Everyone wants people to think well of them. Some people don't even care if it's true, as long as how we are would like to be perceived, if we're perceived that way, we're happy, even whether it is true or not. There's a story of a man who died, and he was a well-known scoundrel in the town in which he lived. The whole town knew him for a cheat and a crook. He, went, uh, he had a wealthy brother who was no better than he was. Both of them were just rotten people. And he told the preacher, I want you to have his funeral, and I want you to basically glorify him. I want you to fix his bad name in that funeral. I want you to say good things about him that'll uh, make people think better of him than they did when he was alive. The preacher said, not on your life. There's no way, he said, not in a thousand years. You think my integrity's for sale? The man said, I'll give $10,000 to your church. The preacher says, okay, on second thought. Uh, we'll think about it. He says, I'll give 10000 to the church, but I'll only do it if you call my brother a saint at the funeral. Now, this is a real pickle the preacher's in. He doesn't know what to do because he's got to, on one hand, he doesn't want to lose his integrity. On the other hand, you know, a $10,000 gift is quite a gift to the church. And so, uh, at the funeral, he gets up to give, uh, to start preaching the message and he starts to talk about the deceased. He said, this man was a thief. He was a liar. He was mean to children. He kicked cats. And he just went all the way down the line of all the horrible things this man had done. He was an indelible scoundrel, he said. But compared to his brother sitting on the second row, this man was a saint. And so he did get the $10,000. Now, whether we are or not, we want people to think we're a saint. Whether we are or not. The, that little story showcases a problem that afflicts far too many church people. Too often, what we claim to be and what we really are, are miles apart. This is a condition we have a name for. It's called hypocrisy. The word comes to us from the ancient, uh, the ancient Greek language. It's used to describe actors in a play. Uh, ancient, uh, in that time, actors would carry around masks on a stick. You've seen pictures of these, and they would put different faces up on them depending on what parts they were playing. Some faces were had a smile. They were, represented happiness. Some had represented sadness, and so they would use these different masks to play different parts in that play. Uh, these actors were called uh, Hippocrates. The word means one who wears a mask. So we use the word today to refer to people who pretend to be one thing, and really they're something else. People that come to church live one way, and then live another way at home. We call them hypocrites. Now, there should be no people like that in the church, but sadly... There are some. Now, I will say this. There are people that I talk to, uh, and you probably have too. Uh, I don't come to church because there's too many hypocrites. That's just dumb. There's no other way to put it. 
That's stupid, silly, ridiculous. Uh, why, by the way, if a hypocrite stands between you and God, they're closer to God than you are. So don't use a hypocrite as an excuse not to do right yourself. People should no more judge a church by looking at hypocrites than they should test the value of diamonds by looking at counterfeit diamonds. You don't test the value of something right by something false. Let's read a passage here in Scripture and we'll learn what Jesus has to say about this subject. I think we'll uh, be able to uh, be a help here. Mark chapter 7, verse number 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. When they saw some of his disciples eat bread uh, with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands, oft eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the market, except they washed, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written you, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban. That is to say, A gift by whatsoever thou mayest be profited by me, he shall be free. I want to preach today for a few minutes on clean hands and a dirty heart. Clean hands and a dirty heart. Father, I pray you'd help us. As we look at this text, help us to learn from it what you will. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus has an encounter with a group of hypocrites. They have come from Jerusalem, which was the Vatican of its day. They came to watch Jesus preach and do what he did, not so that they might learn from him, but that they might criticize him and his ministry. We see first of all here the problem confronted. As they watch Jesus and his men, they notice that they are eating without washing their hands. They saw this and they, they got really upset. The Bible says they found fault. Don't you just love people who make this their ministry? Finding fault. If you do anything for God, you're going to have people find fault. There's just always folks like that. Uh, the only people who never hear criticism or have other people find fault with them are those people who do absolutely nothing for God. But you get busy for God, you're going to have people find fault. Uh, usually a critic is a nobody doing nothing finding fault with a somebody doing something. But yet, you keep on doing something for God, no matter if there is criticism there. Now, the word fault means to place blame. Then they turned, the Bible says, their attention to Jesus here, because he was the leader of the disciples, he was their rabbi, he was responsible for their behavior, and they talked about this washing of hands. Now, I know some of you read this, you might think, uh, I don't understand what the big deal is, because you might be saying, I have kids, and they haven't washed their hands since 2019, unless I force them to. That's not what this is talking about. The disciples were not eating with dirty hands. The problem was a ritual. That's what the, uh, the Pharisees were all worked up about. 
the Pharisees would not eat unless they washed their hands a certain way. Uh, they had a ritual to it, especially when they returned from the marketplace, the Bible says here, because they might have rubbed shoulders with Gentiles. Ugh, Gentiles. And so for the Jews and all religious people, really, but for the Jews here specifically we're talking about today, everything revolved around ritual. When they washed their hands before a meal, the ceremony uh, it consisted of somebody would pour water over their hands while their fingers are pointing up, and as soon as water started to run from their wrist, they would then turn their hands around with the fingers pointing down. They would pour more water on the top of their hands, and then they would have to rub one hand with the fist of this hand, rub the other hand with the fist of this hand. This is the exact type ritual that they went through to wash their hands. Now, you may listen to that and smile, but if you, like me, came from a religion where ritual's a big deal, you understand this is serious business. I mean, they had to do it just so, just right. One rabbi, uh, history tells us, was arrested. And he almost died in a Roman prison because the water that they gave them to basically live on, the ration that he got to drink, he used to do this ritual of water and didn't have anything to drink, almost died from, from thirst. Because that's how serious they took it. The Jewish Mishnah, which is the Jewish, you're going to hear me refer to the Mishnah a couple of times today, that is the Jewish oral laws that they came up with. Uh, that has over 35 pages of instruction alone devoted to washing. Pots, pans, hands, all that. The problem with their rules is that the rules did not come from God. The rules came from their elders, the traditions of their elders. The tradition of the elders came into being with good intentions. Can I tell you that most religions start with good intentions? Uh, they are often led astray, and we'll see today how that works. But the Mishnah says that the tradition of the elders is a fence around the law. The law is the Bible. And so they essentially built a fence around the law in, a, in an effort to protect the law from the people. So they added to that law. They added restrictions on the people that went far beyond the law of God. Let me give you a few fences that they put around the law. Looking in a, you know, the Sabbath, they were supposed to keep it holy. They take that very serious. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. That's what God said. Later, Jesus said the man wasn't made for Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It, or, it, you don't get this confused. And so, looking in the mirror on the Sabbath was forbidden. Because you might see a gray hair and pluck it. That would mean you're working. So you can't, some of you would be working for a while. Amen? All right, going on. Just, just kidding with you there. You cannot carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath. You can't carry a handkerchief, but if you needed one, if you needed to blow your nose and it was upstairs, you could walk upstairs, tie it around your neck, walk back downstairs, and now you could blow your nose. You weren't working, you were wearing. This is a discernment that they made. There was a heated debate about a man with a wooden leg that they wondered if his home caught fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath? This is the kind of thing they argued about. One, this is a written law. You could spit on the Sabbath, but you cannot spit on dirt. You might rub it out with your foot, and thereby you would be working the earth. And so you could not uh, spit on the Sabbath on certain places. All kinds of rules like this. Again, you might think how silly, but if you came from a religion, I came from an Amish religion, 
that, that was, I mean, they, they lived and died by silly rules like that, that they made up. This was serious to the Pharisees. It's easily to see how foolish man-made rules can become. In fact, this is the rule for religion, not the exception. If you base your salvation on rules and obeying rules, you'll automatically add more rules to make yourself more holy and get yourself closer to salvation. The problem with the Pharisees is not the rules, but these rules came from men, not from God. And they were rules made by men seeking to control other men. Now, when God's word says something is wrong, friend, it's wrong, it doesn't matter what society says. Adam and Steve is still wrong. God created Adam and Eve. Amen? Doesn't matter what society says. Doesn't matter what Hollyweird says. Doesn't matter what the, uh, the professors say. Wrong is wrong, though all condone it. Right is right, though all condemn it. And so we've got to understand the Bible is uh, right without question. But it always happens when man adds rules to what the Bible says, soon those rules will carry more weight than the Bible itself. That was the problem with what was going on here. Now, I, I just want to make mention here. You understand clearly, I, I don't want to be mistaken, I am all for standards. I think every family ought to have strong standards. I think that that is a, uh, standards are a way for us to guard against sin. 1 Corinthians six twelve. the Bible says, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Thessalonians five twenty two. abstain from all appearance of evil. Uh, 1 Corinthians eight thirteen. therefore, if any meat make my brother offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So there, it's a good thing for us to have standards in our life because not everything is, that is evil should be in our life. I mean, just because it's not evil doesn't mean it shouldn't be in my life. Sometimes we have those type of standards. Now remember, I'm not talking about what the Bible tells us. I'm talking about going beyond that and setting up standards in our own life. Uh, to use rules as fences to restrain our flesh that's not necessarily a bad thing. I like to use the illustration thing I had before of the sumo wrestler. Have you ever seen that? Watch sumo wrestlers. They wear the diapers and diapers on their heads and all that stuff. Crash together. Big, 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 giant guys. Sumo wrestling, I haven't ever watched a match, only seen bits and pieces, but uh, I, I understand that in sumo wrestling, the way you get points is to push your opponent off the mat. That's why you see them in the beginning, you know, crash together. Big guys coming together. So that, then they push each other and try to get each other off the mat. And to get a point, you push your opponent off the mat. Now just imagine for a minute, me, a sumo wrestler. I would be, I'd have to have somebody much smaller than the normal. But if, I, if this is our mat here, and this is the edge of the mat here, where is the safest place for me to be at as a sumo wrestler? When they ring the bell or whatever they do to get the thing started, I want to immediately get to the middle of the mat because then it's harder to push me off. What kind of fool would I be if I stood all the way over to the edge here? Uh, I'd be just, I'd, I'd be not far from getting pushed over the edge. Now, in the idea of standards in our Christian life, many Christians make the mistake, I believe, young people, adults alike, to get as close to the world as possible, as close to the edge as possible, without going over. It's one reason why, and I'm not trying to knock anybody or trying to push myself on you, but it's one reason why I do not listen to contemporary Christian music of any kind. 
I have very strong personal music standards. I don't want my music to sound like the world. I don't want my music. I, I want my music to be so distinct that I can tell immediately that it is not a it is not a worldly song. It's a Christian song. And so not only do I not listen to uh, country and those t- other types of things, rap. Who in the wide world would want to listen to rap? My goodness. Anyway, uh, so I try to have those strong standards because I don't want to be on the edge. And so with dress, with music, with movies and all those things, why don't we stand right in the middle as far from the world as we can rather than stand right over on the edge where we can easily get pushed off. Those, that's what standards does. However, it's very important for us to understand is the problem with, with having those rules is that when a person starts to gauge the Christianity of others by their own rules and their own standards. Because if I use my standards that I have, and I guarantee you, I'll have stronger standards in some areas of my life than you do. You might have stronger standards in some areas of your life than I do. But if I start to, to, to uh, gauge your Christianity or to judge you according to my standards, that becomes a problem. The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, verse 3, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God receiveth him, them. Now, again, I don't believe we're talking here about right and wrong. Right and wrong is right and wrong. Amen? We can't, you, what's not, you know, I know you don't drink, but I believe it's okay to take a drink. Hey, the Bible's pretty clear on that being wrong. Okay, so I don't hedge on things that are, the Bible says are right and wrong. I'm talking about external rules beyond that. Uh, this is what the Pharisees did. They took their man-made rules and applied it to other people and said, you, you are wicked because you're not following the traditions of the elders. All right. Now, before we beat up on the Pharisees, let's understand a couple of facts. We all have a problem of spiritual uncleanness, of moral defilement. The Pharisees were not just obsessive, compulsive, disordered people. There are those type of people, the ones that have that those syndromes that they have to wash all the time. This wasn't what the Pharisees had. I heard about one poor sap who had OCD and ADD. Everything had to be perfect, but not very long. Uh, this is not their problem, okay? This wasn't what, they weren't dealing with an OCD situation. This was, uh, they were doing what every good person wants to do. They find a way to deal with that uncleanness in their heart. People use all sorts of different ways of self-cleansing. The Pharisees were very upset because Jesus' disciples did not observe their ceremonial washings and that. Pharisees were very strict about uh, the holding to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We call them the clean laws. That's what we're referring to here. There are a lot of them in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You were not allowed to go into the tabernacle to worship if you had been in any contact with decay, disease, or even dirt. You had to wash your hands and wash your feet before you came into the sanctuary if that was the case. If you touched a dead animal or a dead person, you could not go into the tabernacle for a week. If you had diarrhea, skin infection, or any type of bleeding from any part of your body, you could not go into the house of God. A worshiper in the Old Testament had basically the same relationship to dirt than a a surgeon does going into surgery. In other words, you'd have to scrub up to come into the presence of God. You'd have to get yourself cleaned up. Uh, Why? Because the clean laws, don't miss this, are there for a very important purpose. God was demonstrating to them that sin defiles the soul. 
just as dirt, decay, and disease defiles the body. Sin defiles, and we all know it, really, on some level. Every civilization ever has tried to deal with this defilement. They do it differently. The Mayans and the Aztecs, I recently uh, read quite a bit on their civilization. The Mayans and the Aztecs did it with human sacrifice. The Aztecs sacrificed 80,400 men, women, and children for the inauguration of the Mayor Temple alone in one day. Uh, that, why? They were trying to appease their gods. Peter Damien was a Benedictine monk, and he taught that spirituality should manifest itself in physical torture. <laughs> it's not just the Pharisees. This is how they dealt with it, but people try to deal with this uncleanness all different ways. They were just washing and always washing because sin defiles. We know we're defiled, and so mankind develops ways to deal with it. How do we deal with some of this spiritual uncleanness? Well, the Pharisees dealt with it by washing. They were obsessed with the traditions of the elders. Uh, Mark, though he was Jewish, was writing, wrote the book of Mark to Greeks and Romans, so that's written for, written for Gentiles, and so this is why he throws those little parentheses in trying to explain what was going on here. Uh, in the Old Testament, back in Exodus, only the priests had to wash their hands before they went into the tabernacle, but the teachers of the law said, hey, if the priests have to do it, why shouldn't all of us do it then? And then they took it a step further. If we pray before we go into the house of God, why don't we pray, uh, if we wash before we go in the house of God, why don't we wash before we pray? And that's how the rules started getting added to those things. The next thing you know, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that God gave turned into the what they call the halacha, which is the fence around the law, the tradition of the elders. Jesus points out here, not only do they make their traditions as necessary as God's laws, they also take God's laws and they kind of throw them out now. They're not as important anymore. This is what happens every time you create a religion or a merit-based salvation system. Uh, you throw away God's laws and you elevate your own. And so they worship God not according to his direction, but according to their own invention. This is a terrible thing that people do. Now, they ended up, basically what Jesus is trying to show, they have clean hands, but they have a dirty heart. Do, do you really think that you could come to God in prayer, maybe on your lunch break or, or sometime during the day, you come to God in prayer and you ask forgiveness for your sins and you're worshiping Him and you're asking Him to help you and you're, you're just having a long uh, time of prayer and, and then you notice you've got a grease spot or a smudge on your hand and you think, oh, that was all for waste. God couldn't hear. You think God cares if we got a grease spot on our hand while we're praying to Him? No. It wasn't, the point was not about the dirt. The point that was trying to be made here is that we need to be pure in here when we come to God. We need to purity in our hearts. The Pharisees were putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. Now, look at the problem condemned. They were so upset with Jesus because his disciples did not perform the ritual washings of the Jews. And in these verses, Jesus reveals their hypocrisy. Verses 6 through 9, he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. Wherefore the Lord says, For as much as these people draw near me with their mouth, with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far away from me. Uh, the, he accuses them of elevating their traditions to the point 
that it carries more weight than the Word of God. Can I tell you, friend, it always does. Religion always does that. They'll carry more weight. Their rules will carry more weight than the Word of God. History reveals that uh, in, with several statements that were made. Rabbi Eliezer, he's made this statement, and I quote, He who expounds the Scriptures, the Scriptures, in opposition to the uh, tradition, has no share in the world to come. Can you believe that statement? Whoever uses the Bible to talk against our traditions has no share in the world to come. Listen to this statement uh, made by the Mishnah. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. That's religion for you. Judaism does it. Every religion does it. There's it's always the way it is. The rules soon supersede the Bible. It's interesting, by the way, the progression here. In verse 8, he says that you've laid aside the commandments of God in, <coughs> in favor of man-made traditions. In verse 9, he tells them they've rejected the commandments of God to keep their traditions. Jesus condemns their hypocrisy. They teach that people that the right way to be right with God, let's just listen to the arrogance here, is to keep all of their rules. And so God will be pleased with you. You can ple please God if I approve of you. That's essentially what they were saying. So you have to be approved of me before you can please God. This is exactly the type of religion I was raised up in. It, like the, there was a group of men that they basically decided God's favor or God's disfavor on you. And they have something they call the ban. And when they give the ban to you, God in heaven honors their ridiculous ban because God is subservient to their traditions. It's ridiculous, but that's what religion is. Jesus then talks about Corbin. Mentions it here. You might read that and think, what is Corbin? Well, the word Corbin means a gift offered to God. Now, Jesus is referring to here one of their practices. He's, uh, the, you know what the fifth commandment is? Honor thy father and thy mother. That was the fifth commandment. Exodus 21, 12, or 20, 12. And in Exodus 21, 17, the Bible says, He that curseth, curseth his father and mother, he shall surely be put to death. Part of honoring one's parents was to take care of them, provide for their needs as long as they live. Many people still honor that custom today. Uh, parents get too old to take care of themselves. I think it's up to the children to take care of them. You guys listening? Okay, good. It's up to the children to take care of them. We took care of you when you were little. Now you take care of us when we uh, get older. And so, there, but the Jews found a way around that. By the way, that was commanded in, by God. They said that their money or possessions was Corbin. That is a gift offered to God. They could only use that money in sacred matters. Of course, they were in control of what sacred matters were. So now they could, now they were off the hook with mom and dad. They could tell mom and dad, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you because all of my wealth and all of my money is tied up in Corbin, the gift offered to God. It let them off the, and Jesus is saying, you bunch of low-life hypocrites, cold-hearted fiends, ignoring your parents, ignoring the command of God because you worked a way around it? That's what the, that religion does. There, another problem with rule makers, we find is they're the most mean-spirited people in the world. I found that to be true in many religions. I found that to be true in the religion I was saved from. I cannot believe how mean-spirited religious people can be. 
They try to keep all the rules and they condemn those who do not keep their rules. They're so busy crossing their T's, dotting their I's, but they're never too busy to pass judgment. They'll do that all day long. That's why there's often more compassion and there's more sympathy, there's more acceptance in the corner bar than there is in the neighborhood church. And that's a sad, sad thing. There had never arisen a prophet like Jesus. He spoke with divine authority. He spoke with sovereign power. He performed amazing miracles. He changed lives like none other before him. Yet the Pharisees looked at all that and they said, He can't be God because He doesn't wash His hands. Ridiculous. What religion, how spiritually blind religion makes mankind. Look at the problem clarified. In these verses, Jesus shed some light on the subject. We try to cleanse ourselves these ways. It doesn't work, he said. And here's why. He lays down a principle in verse number 15. There's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. This is incredibly profound. We, we think, well, duh, we might understand this. The world doesn't understand this. This is something we've got to understand because we start to understand the gospel when we see this. And I can promise you, the world philosophies don't get this. The world's religions certainly don't get it. You see Hindu people going down to the river Ganges to wash. You see people following the five-fold path to enlightenment through Buddhism. You see people trying to use the five pillars of Islam to honor God. Closer to home for us, you see people depend on infant baptism. You see people depend on church membership. If you believe any, any way that salvation comes from the outside in, then self-effort will be enough. You'll start to do it yourself. Rules and regulations will get you there. It is really from the core a belief that sin is a behavioral problem. And so I can fix my sin problem by changing my behavior. But friends, sin is not a behavioral problem. Sin is no more a behavioral problem than cancer is. It's a condition that we're born with. Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and so death by sin. So death passed on all men, for that all have sinned. We are all in that, we all have that condition, and we can't take care of it on our own. No matter how fast you run, you can't outrun your shadow. <laughs> it comes from inside you. Even if the outside is right, these things will defile you when they reside in your heart. Slapping a religious patch on a defiled heart doesn't make things right. The religious Jews did everything by the book, and yet they were still responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. Think about that. Outwardly they were clean. Inwardly they were defiled. They had clean hands and they had a dirty heart. You can't clean yourself. It'll never work. What then will work? Well, in verse 19, here Jesus essentially declared all foods clean. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. That means we can eat bacon with a clear conscience. Amen? He declared all foods clean. Now, how could he do that? How could he go against something the Old Testament said? Uh, said some foods are clean and some foods are not. The answer is found in Matthew 5.17. Jesus said, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm come to not to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, what Jesus is saying here is not the Pharisees are just too legalistic. They're put too much emphasis on the law. That's not important anymore. God accepts you just as you are. Now, no, many churches say that today. Come as you are. Leave as you were. Jesus is in no way saying that. No, friend, we do need to be cleansed. 
We absolutely need to be cleansed. He's just showing them the futility of trying to do it themselves. They can't do it themselves. But we do need cleansing. And it comes from the one who fulfilled the law. In the Old Testament, they were told to wash before worship. All that points to what the Bible says in Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They were red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. It is His blood that washes our sin away, white as snow. What can wash away my sin? We just sang it a few minutes ago. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The whole point of the passage is this here, friend. The problem with mankind is the problem of the heart. That's where the Lord looks upon us in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, but that's where sin orig originates, Matthew 12, 34. That's the part of man that needs to be changed. Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give unto you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will put, take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. There we see a clean heart, not just clean hands. I have here, you've no doubt noticed it and been questioning yourselves throughout the whole time. I have a watermelon in front of us here. When I was in Bible college, uh, my pastor was a pretty impressive guy. My pastor, when I was in college, was a black belt in karate. And one time... He had me come, he was doing an illustration, he had me come and lay down in front of him on a bench, and he blindfolded himself, then he took a sword, he laid a watermelon on my chest, and he stood up here on the steps, and he jumped down through the air, and he brought the sword right down the watermelon just to the edge of the stomach, and it fell apart. So what I'm asking for this morning is a volunteer. We've got volunteers. That's, that's what deacons are for, amen? Don't you agree? That's what they should come up. Uh, nobody, <laughs> yeah, you can't volunteer somebody else. Nobody trusts their pastor these days. That's terrible. But the, the point that I want to make today with a watermelon, I love, love watermelon. One of the things I don't like about buying watermelon is people claim this all day long, but nobody's ever helped me definitively. You just can't pick a good one. You don't know if it's good until you get home. Now, I know you've got old wives' tales right now ringing around your head, but, and you can talk to me after, and that's great. I've yet to find someone that can tell me definitively how to always pick a good one. Because they all lay in the bin there, they're all overpriced, and you know what they all tell me? I'm good. Look at me. I'm great. They all look the same. They got the same pattern. Everything looks alike. And yet, I'm looking at the bin. I don't know which ones are good. I don't know which ones are bad. It's infinitely frustrating to me to overpay for a watermelon and get it home, you slice it open, and it's white and hard and bitter. And I got this one. I seriously overpaid for this particular watermelon because it's out of season. Okay? And so I have no idea what I find when I cut into this thing. But uh, if I do, it's always a gamble. You open it up, and you don't know whether it's good or not. You might have a hard one. You might have a super soft, juicy, clean, good one. I overpaid for this watermelon big time. Big time. I kept the receipt. So, this is our secret, amen? Take this back. 
truth is, we're all like that in church. We all look good. We all carry our Bibles. We all got our smiles on. And really, it doesn't always determine what's inside. We could be hard, bitter, inside, just like that overpaid watermelon. And I tell you, I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of Christian that you find on the inside what you see on the outside. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I don't want to adhere to a set of rules, do all I can, do everything that I'm supposed to do, and yet have good, clean hands and a dirty heart. I don't want that. How about you? Look into your heart right now. Not what people see, talking about you. In your own heart, in your own mind, God knows you and you know you. What do you find there? Do you find anger, lust, divisiveness, unforgiveness, pride, hatred, deviousness? Or do you find love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness? What dwells in your heart is what you really are. Not what you put forth. Not what people think. What dwells in your heart is what you really are. So, we need cleansing. Every one of us need cleansing from time to time. And all we are capable, don't miss this, all we are capable of cleansing is these right here. You can cleanse your hands, but you can't cleanse your heart. To cleanse your heart, you need to go to the one who fulfilled the law. You need to go to Jesus Christ. He alone can cleanse you on the inside. Are you here today, friend, in need of some cleansing? Come to Him. Come to Christ. And He'll cleanse you. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know where the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning or what area He has touched on. But I encourage you to respond today. If you're here today, dear friend, and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, would you please settle that before you leave today? You come forward at the invitation. We'll have somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know you're going to heaven. Most important decision you'll ever make. Dear Christian, how about you? Even as Christians, sometimes we can get caught up in the treadmill of trying to cleanse ourselves and we end up with clean hands, but we got dirty hearts. Would you respond today as she begins to play? Would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed, and the altars open? If God spoke to your heart today, would you respond?